Hi, and welcome back to This Week in Voice for Thursday, September the 21st, 2017. This Week in Voice is brought to you by Voice XP, blazing the trail in voice technology. Voice XP is taking the lead in developing Alexa skills for some of the best brands in the world. With Voice XP, all you have to do is say it to revolutionize your marketing strategy. And if you have not gone to www.voicexp.com, stop the podcast just for a minute, go there, check it out. You'll be glad that you did. I'm Bradley Metrock. I'm CEO of a company called Score Publishing based here in Nashville, Tennessee. We are very pleased to have a phenomenal panel today. Our first guest is Professor Emily Bender. Emily, say hello. Hello. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for joining us. Emily Bender is a professor of linguistics at the University of Washington, along with faculty director of the Professional MS Program in Computational Linguistics. Emily, share with us just what is the study of linguistics? So the study of linguistics is sometimes described as the science of human language. We're interested in how languages work, how they change over time, how they're similar to each other and different from each other, um, how people process language when they're talking, when they're understanding, how children learn their first language, how uh, older people learn second languages. Um, and computational linguistics has to do with how we can get computers to naturally deal with human language. That's really cool. Thank you very, very much for joining us today. Thank you. Our next guest is Jess Thornhill. Jess, say hello. Hi, thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us once again. Jess, when we spoke last time, um, you were sort of, you had just switched on to LifeBot. I think LifeBot had just gone live. Share with us a little bit what you're working on right now and a little bit about LifeBot. Yeah, so uh, LifeBot is a voice app, so it's available on Amazon Alexa and now recently, or very soon, hopefully, on Google Home. And the idea is that we want to create a voice app that will be the only app you ever need and also um, help them do simple tasks and use um, Alexa and, and a voice assistant in the best way possible. So we're starting with productivity um, to help you do uh, things like setting reminders and to-do lists. But the idea is that we want to become a platform and complete almost anything. Thank you very much for joining us, Jess. We appreciate you sharing your time and insight with us today. And our third guest is Karen Koshansky. Karen, say hello. Hi, from Switzerland. Karen, first of all, you can't say that and we can't explore that. So why are you in Switzerland? Um, just moved out here with my family for a big, uh, big adventure. But I am continuing to work in, in the field that I've been working in, which is working with emerging technologies, um, pushing the boundaries on things like voice and conversational um, interactions and self-driving cars. Very cool. And I did not know um, until doing research for this episode that you had been named one of Business Insider's top 75 designers in technology. Congratulations on that. Thanks. That was a few years ago. I feel like they, they need to put up an, uh, out an updated list and let's see you know, if, if I can kind of keep, keep on it. But uh, that was a few years ago already. Yeah, no, still, still very cool. Uh, thank all three of you for joining us today. Thrilled to have you. With that, Let's get into the news. Story number one is a very interesting one. And what has become normal for this show, it involves Amazon. Amazon is developing Alexa-powered glasses. And if that weren't enough of a story, there's more. <laughs> They're going to be ready by the end of the year. This is really going to shape a lot of how uh, voice-first technology evolves moving forward. And 
Karen, I will start with you on this story. What do you think about Amazon trying again with glasses? You know, Google Glass, they tried, didn't work. What do you think about Amazon trying again? And what did you take away from this story in general? So when I first read the headline, I got very excited. I'm currently working with a client working in mixed reality and have been recognizing the power of voice in mixed reality, in you know virtual reality, kind of a, as you're augmenting the world around you and what, what, what you might want to do with voice. But then I dug into it a little more and found Alexa, Amazon is creating this. They're, they're, they won't have a camera, supposedly. No camera, no screen. Basically, I think they're just trying to get her, trying to introduce Alexa in a way that you can take, take her with you on the go because they're not built directly into the smartphone, which we all know. But what I have to ask is, you know, what does Alexa know or give me on the go that other assistants don't? And is it worth wearing glasses for? I use Alexa to play music. I, I love my Alexa. I reorder toilet paper, but I don't know that I need to wear an extra, something extra in order to do that on the street. I got excited, but then I was a little disappointed because I'm not sure what the real use case is if, it, if it's not kind of pushing boundaries in other areas. So I think I had the same question, which is, it's interesting. It's interesting to think about where it might go. But if the point is all audio, then why glasses? Like I already wear glasses with corrective lenses. I don't want to switch them out for something that's audio. I think Amazon might... Um, do better to do something that's, um, I guess they want access to the sort of the skull behind the ear to be able to have it be really quiet. So you could do some sort of cool ear decoration or something and like leave the glasses out of it. I think potentially if, if Amazon have some kind of longer strategy behind this, it could be quite a clever move because I think obviously this is probably their attempt to compete with Google and Apple in the fact that they don't have hardware um, so their voice, as in mobile hardware that's on the go. So obviously you can access Google Assistant and Siri on your phones, but Amazon have been behind the others because you can't do that right now. So I guess this is there. And obviously the Amazon phones didn't do that well. But with um, something like this, it lets you access Alexa on the go. But I agree that you only being able to have audio kind of, it doesn't really make sense for glasses, but it could just be a way of Amazon getting out a glasses product first, which obviously they, they seem to care about being first in the market with the Echo devices. So maybe this is just their way of getting something out there early with the potential of having future versions that will allow for things like cameras and augmented reality because um, there are rumours that Apple are working on AR glasses and obviously you've got Google Glass. So maybe this is just their first iteration of it and we'll see something more exciting in the future. Bradley, just um, thinking about a, a conversation you guys had a, a few weeks ago with the Microsoft Cortana and Amazon deal. The, the other thing that came to mind is like, are we going to now see people walking down the street with Amazon glasses saying like, hey, Cortana, right? Like all of a sudden, like the lines are blurring a lot. I, I just don't know yeah, what, what the glasses um, will do for the whole experience. Well, it's funny you say that because uh, I just got back from the Intelligent Assistance Conference out in San Francisco. Great conference, great organizers. Opus Research really did a nice job. Met a lot of folks out in the Bay Area. Uh, but I will say this, uh, at the table that we were set up at in the vendors area, up walked some guy, I'm not going to say who it was, and uh, explaining to him, you know, 
we do a bunch of shows on Voice First FM, including this week in Voice. You know, we're going to be recording that later this week. And a lot of the stuff that uh, is going on with Alexa is moving at a fast pace. And he stopped me and said, yeah, Google's really doing a lot of great things with that, aren't they? And I say that only to say it's not to call anybody out, but just it's everything's moving at such a fast pace that this guy was a professional in like this industry. And even he like is confused (laughs) between like Alexa and Google Home. And you can just imagine the layperson is really starting to get buried under all of these product developments. And uh, to all of y'all's point, I think it's incumbent on Amazon to educate the market on how they would supposed to be using these glasses. But speaking for strictly myself, if they do come out with one that um, is more than audio, that, that has like an echo show sort of screen built in in some sort of augmented reality type of way, man, I am on board for that. That's why I got excited. I think that there is room for things like that. Um, and, and maybe that'll, you know, maybe that'll come, but uh, clearly not, maybe not in the first, in the first rev. So we will move on to story number two, which is our second VoiceBot AI story of the week. This week, it is the story that is based in some data that Voice Labs has sourced, indicating voice app retention has doubled in the last nine months. And Emily, with this, I want to start with you. What did you take away from the story? And do you think, it's sort of the overall theme, I think, of the story is that uh, usage patterns of of smart speakers and voice technology are uh, shifting and evolving. Where do you think we're headed with all of this? So I, I'm clearly we're at the beginning of the um, of the curve here. I mean, doubling is going from 3% to 6%. And there's a lot of room for that to go higher. Um, but I think that the main obstacle between um, for, for many of these apps is ease of use. And that ease of use um, in particular has to do with can the conversation be natural and can the conversation continue for more than one turn? And that's, I mean, right now we're getting, we're seeing a lot of the benefits of voice-based uh, interfaces, but oftentimes you sort of can do one thing at a time and then you have to say the wake word again, or there's no um, saving the state of the conversation, what linguists would call the common ground um, or very rudimentary common ground. And especially with all of these skills that are being contributed through that platform that Amazon's making available, um, I think we're going to see even as some groups figure out how to do multi-turn conversations, a majority are not going to. And so it's going to be confusing for users for a while. But is this something I can keep talking to? Or is it really just one-off commands? But you do see it as a positive, right? That this number has gone up? Sure. I mean, it seems like to a certain extent, uh, developers are figuring out how to create something that's engaging enough and useful enough that people find it worthwhile to use. Yeah. For, so for us as uh, builders of, of voice apps, it's obviously great news to see that more people are, are keeping on and using them um, in the second week. And um, yeah, I think it definitely shows two things. So one, as Emily said, it means that hopefully this is showing that developers are creating better conversations, that they're creating skills that are easier to use, that people know how to use and are more likely to use uh, longer term. But also, I guess it does show the general trend that people are starting to get more comfortable with voice and their their understanding that this can be a part of their life and something that they use every day. But I would definitely say that the fact that it's doubled is a good, obviously a good thing. There's definitely a long way to go. Um, We did a survey with some of our users uh, a couple of weeks ago and asked how many third party skills they used on a regular basis. And a lot of them still don't know the difference between native Alexa and a third party skill. So I think there's a massive amount of education needs to happen on 
what a skill is and how to use it and how it's actually even different to what Alexa can do natively. 6% still pretty, still, still pretty low. And I think we'll, we'll talk about this with another story um, on, you know, quality versus, you know, the quantity of skills. A lot of it is about discoverability um, and education. Um, I'm curious, you know, I'd, what I'd love to see is the, the types of voice apps that are, that are, uh, being used to understand like wh- how are people really using this? I mean, we know, we see the, the main ones, right? We're using it for music, we're using it for reminders, but what are those third-party apps that are really sticking, that are really the use case for these speakers in the home? And um, I'm also curious because just recently, you know, Alexa just uh, launched not too long ago in Europe, and it, it is very new for, for Europe to, in the UK and in Germany and in France. And so um, it'd be curious to see also kind of the voice apps across cultures, across countries of like what's, what's making a difference for people. Emily, you touched on something interesting, the, the concept that you noted of, of common ground uh, in a conversation and, uh, and the fact that you're having to, you know, use the wake word every time. And one of the big things I do with the Echo is play Sirius XM. And every single time I have to say, Alexa, play 90s on 9 on Sirius XM. And if I say any of that wrong or if it doesn't understand it, it just misses the whole thing. It'd be nice to say, Alexa, do, keep playing music you know, or, or additional context to the conversation. So I, I, I find, find it interesting you noted that, and I completely agree. I just want to give you another fun example. We were heading down, um, I live in Seattle, down to Tacoma for the state chess tournament. And I was interacting in that case with a Google Home while I was, I think, brushing my hair, trying to think about, okay, where's the closest grocery store to where I'm going to be so I can get snacks for my kid? And I could not get it to give me the information. I would say, you know, where's the closest grocery store to the location that I was going to be at, the, the Tacoma Convention Center? And it was basically picking places close to me where I am now because I said closest. And then if I said, okay, what's the address of the Tacoma Convention Center? And then in order to get it to tell me the grocery store is near there, I had to tell it back that whole address. But if it had common ground, then I could say, okay, closest grocery store to that. And it would understand what I mean. And that's, that's the future I would like to see coming about. But those are really hard problems. Yeah, they are. And, you know, the, the flip side of it is that if Alexa just stayed on all the time, then you'd have people screaming about privacy and things like that. So, yeah, we got these are these are interesting problems that uh, I'm glad I don't have to solve. <laughs> I'm glad Amazon will handle that uh, for us. Moving on to story number three. And this is an interesting one. Amazon um, has rolled out a new tablet called the Fire HD 10 that is according to this review that's linked in the show notes, Echo Show in tablet form. I find this very interesting because, as I've noted several times on this show and a couple of others, I am in love with the Echo Show. It's a phenomenal device. It's almost a magical device. And it's, it's tough to even describe for folks who have not uh, experienced it yet or haven't used it. But uh, So anyway, this got my attention. And Jess, I want to start with you on this. Are tablets meant to be voice first? Is Amazon going to win with this like they have with the Echo Show? What are, you, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so I found this really interesting as well. And um, of our users, a lot of them do actually already use um, Alexa on their Fire tablets, which we found really interesting because at first we just assumed that 100% of people probably only access Alexa on, on an Echo device. So it's really interesting to see that um, tablets are coming into the fore here. And if you can give someone almost the same capabilities as an Echo show in a much cheaper, more convenient format, then I say go for it. The one thing I think 
that was interesting on this, uh, the way that this article was written was that it, it kind of suggested that it was counterintuitive to have voice on a, a tablet because it sort of suggests that why would you need to use voice when you can use your, your fingers or your, your hands? And I think that's one thing about um, the discussion around voice that I think needs to, to start changing that the idea that you only use voice when you can't access your phone or your tablet and I think it's not necessarily the case. And if anything, voice should be considered as something that is complementary to. So if you're browsing on your, your tablet, but you're doing one thing, but you want to also complete something else, another task at the same time, you should be able to do that with your voice. And I think that using um, Alexa and tablets is, is the way to do that. So I think, yeah, I think it's important to start thinking about voice as not just a, a sort of secondary alternative to, to using um, a mobile device. What I immediately think about with this is education. With other parts of Score Publishing, we've gotten involved in producing content um, in education in the educational realm. And Emily, I want to ask you: You teach linguistics. Uh, you teach a number of classes. Wouldn't it be cool to have a textbook, a digital textbook, or other digital resources that are part of your curriculum that are on a, a tablet device that could be voice first? Um, I just think there's so much potential for that. That's a really interesting question. I think that there's, as, as Jess was saying, it's worth thinking about how we use voice naturally and how it could fit in. And a lot of what we do with all kinds of devices is very much shaped by how the devices have trained us. So it's really hard to get people to do full natural language queries in internet search because we're so trained to the keyword thing. Even if we have something that's hard to express in keywords, we still try. Um, and so figuring out where the natural uses for voice are um, and where it is and is not convenient, right? So one thing about your hands is that they're quiet. And so there's sometimes when you got to be quiet and so talking wouldn't be good. And then there's sometimes where um, talking is the more natural alternative. And so I think that it could be, for example, um, if I had a textbook on a voice activated or voice capable system, I might want to be able to search in it, maybe search for terms I don't really know how to spell. Right. So that's one side of it, sort of finding finding the use cases where it makes a lot of sense. And then the other side is an issue that I think applies across voice technology, which is being ready to deal with um, diverse speaking styles, diverse um, dialects, accents. So thinking about my own students, we have quite a few international students. And I want to make sure that if I if I integrate something into my curriculum, it is equally accessible to someone whose English doesn't sound like mine. I'm curious to see how uh, what the performance is like. I mean, I think one of the things that Amazon, you know, broke out into the market was was their hardware, their mic array, the ability to you know talk to Alexa from across across the room. Now, this is different, of course, because it, you have a screen, and when you have a screen, you're kind of expecting you're you're going to be closer. So maybe you know the it will still pick up, you know, hey, Alexa, um, from from a little ways away, and 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 it'll work. Um, but but the one thing that I wanted to bring up as well with kind of voice on um, voice on tablets, or you know, it's not just voice or gesture, you know, or touch. It's that we're really going to start seeing situations where you're going to want to use both, you know which is, you know, the old MIT, you know, put that there and um, I want that one. That's where, again, the kind of more on the, the, the cameras kind of integrated into these devices are going to become kind of required. But um, I think using both voice and touch and gesture altogether will, will end up making 
the experience much more natural. So it's not only common ground with voice, it's like common ground with context as well. I just want to chime in and say absolutely that the, the common ground is not just the linguistic history of what's been going on, but the environment that the interlocutors are in and what they can see and how can, they can direct each other's attention to things with things like points. I think that's spot on. Moving on to story number four. Google is rolling out a mini, a Google Home mini that looks similar to Amazon's Echo Dot. Apparently, it's designed to function like Amazon's Echo Dot. They're announcing this thing on October 4th, according to the report that we have linked in the news stories of the week. And Karen, I'm going to start with you on this. Uh, You know, we've talked about Amazon. It's dominated this show. It's dominated other shows. Google, clearly with this, simply copying and pasting Amazon's approach. Is that going to be enough? Uh, or is there something else that Google ought to be doing to compete in this space? What, what did you take away? Well, I think that there's a lot of, um, I think there's still a lot of room in, in this space. I mean, this isn't, it's not a surprise. They want a more entry level speaker in, in people's homes. Um, so they want, they want to compete. But I think they're also trying to get into as many homes as possible before a Facebook speaker comes or other, you know, um, the, the Apple speaker comes. So how do they get in um, more people's homes, get more data, get better over time? I mean, this is what Google does really well, which is uh, improve over time, right? It's all about the data and, and making it better. So I think that they're like definitely not, this isn't a surprise. And um, I think, I think they're doing the right things. Jess, with what LifeBot and Opirlo are doing, does this excite you, Google coming out with their own version of the Amazon Echo Dot and, and so they can get more and more uh, penetration into the marketplace? Or do you think they ought to be doing something different? I think they, they should be doing this. And to be honest, I'm quite surprised it took them so long to come out with a smaller version um, because the Echo Dot's been around for quite a while now. So um, I think this is definitely something that needed to happen. I don't think it's um, particularly revolutionary. Um, and I think it's just another step that they had to had to do, seeing as Amazon already released their own version. I, I think we're also going to probably see, you know, multi-room audio, right? So now you can have your big one in one room and you're going to get a, you're going to get a mini um, for the other room. I mean, this Amazon is doing it already. We're, you know, one thing that Google is doing that Amazon isn't is the um, speaker identification. So, I mean, Google is pushing pushing on innovation in, in ways that Amazon Amazon isn't, and I think they'll they'll continue to find ways like that to push forward. Story number five: Roku is working on a smart speaker of its own, and this has been sort of a, a recurring theme on this show. Hey, here's another company doing a smart speaker. Oh, there's another one. And perhaps that's a cynical view, or maybe it's not. And uh, Jess, I will start with you on this. What do you take away looking at this? And and is this a positive, or is this just sort of irrelevant? Um, So I'm not too familiar with Roku. I'm not sure how big they are in the UK right now. But um, I I do agree with you. It does seem like every week there's another um, brand or company announcing that they're probably going to come out with their own smart speaker. And I think it's good in the sense that it just means that um, more and more people will be uh, using voice as a a means of interaction and a a new way of um, communicating with technology. But I think the real question is now, how are we going to provide a consistent experience across all these different platforms? We've already got Google Home and Alexa but 
how are apps going to really um, provide an experience that is consistent? So, um, and it's not just about having the same functionality on your Google action as your Alexa skill, but say, for example, we get to the stage where people are using different um, voice platforms in different situations. So you might have Alexa in your home, but Cortana in your car or Roku on your, your TV. How do you start an experience in one, but continue it on another? And I think that's going to be the real question, because as you said with your story about the, the conference where someone still said that it was Google and seemed to be a bit confused about um, who the players are in this uh, in this field, I think it's going to be really important that people are educated and they know how to use voice and how to use it across different platforms. But Jess, are you suggesting that it should be consistent or there's just that you can kind of take your experience on one assistant to, to another assistant? I think... Consistency in the sense that if you say, for example, you had an iOS app, but then you switch to Android, you'd want to access the same features on Android. But I think the most important thing is this being able to carry your experience across different ones, because I do think that we'll get to a stage where people have different assistants in different parts of their life. I, I know that I was pinged for that voice user interface job. So um, I know Roku is, they've been trying to hire for a long time. I was probably pinged eight or nine months ago. So they, they've had these open for a while. You know, maybe they're making a speaker. Definitely they're behind in adding voice as a really natural way to interact, to look, you know, to search for your TV content for, you know, for what you want to watch. But again, it goes back to what do you do well? What is, what are your core competencies? And like, why am I going to go to a Roku speaker? Like there has to be some reason, some benefit that it offers me over the ones that I already have, because you're, you're right. Jess is right. Like I already have two or three assistants in, in my life. So why, what is Roku um, going to bring to me that's that's different. Yeah, it's incredible audacity, isn't it? It's incredible audacity, and and I've noted this. This is the way I think about like Facebook saying that they're going to come out with a smart speaker. The incredible audacity of a Facebook or a Roku or anybody to create a device that is that they just assume that someone's going to put in their house and perhaps listen to every word that they ever say for the rest of their life um, without a compelling uh, use case scenario. You know, Amazon's out there marketing every day of the week on TV. Here's what you do with this thing. But most of these other ones aren't. You know, it's just, hey, we'll throw this out there and uh, watch as you ring it up and take it back home and keep it in your house. It's, uh, I agree. It's, it's definitely saturation. So what I thought, and this is again building off of your story from the person who had the Google Assistant and Alexa mixed up, my advice to Roku and to um, Facebook and whoever else is jumping in is to think carefully about how you name the assistant. Um, I think that Google has done well by when you talk to the thing, you say, hey, Google, so you know what you're interacting with. I think Roku should do the same, both for this practical sort of brand identification, but also the context that we've been talking about, so that if there are differences before the skills become uh, more consistent across them, um, it's easier for users to keep track of what they can expect from the one that they're talking to, um, but also for sort of important social reasons. So this put me in mind of a Medium post that I read um, yesterday as part of the seminar I taught on ethics and natural language processing. It's called Google Home versus Alexa. Two simple user experience design gestures that delighted a female a female user by Jana Paolino from January of this year. And this is all connected with what does it mean to assign a gender to these assistants that are not people? 
And what does it mean to even personify them to that extent? And so I think that Google has done a much better thing where you are talking to Google, effectively the company or the software, where Amazon has created Alexa, given a feminine sounding name, people refer to it as she, and um, that leads to um, sort of icky interactions as Paulino explains in this Medium post. I would love to see that Medium post, by the way, and we will link to that in the show notes. Uh, would love to include that. So let me follow up on that. So what is considered the best practice um, or the theoretical best practice for an intelligent assistant or a voice assistant? It, it, it should be genderless or, or male in some situations, female in others, or what was the takeaway? So my takeaway, and I'm not sure this is the consensus, but my takeaway is that you're, you're better off leaving it genderless and having it be... Um, an entity, um, an interlocutor, a creation, but not something that pretends to be a person. And if we get to a point where there's lots and lots of these, and then you might be able to say, okay, we're going to have some of them be male, some of them be female, some of them be other, and see that they all behave the same way, that would be positive. But right now, the trend is they are all, um, if gendered, they are gendered as female, um, and that can be quite problematic. I know that Microsoft did a bunch of research before they really launched Cortana, um, and they tried to make a very neutral kind of sounding assistant. And what they found was um, the stronger the personality um, with Cortana, it it, um, it it was polarizing for some people, but and and kind of turned some some people off. But in the most in more cases, it created a more of a connection to people for for reuse. So even though it wasn't neutral for everybody, so again, it, it kind of it did create some backlash for some people. It did create deeper connections to others. So I think that there is a very uh, a long debate about this in in the industry of um, of having a persona because what what. Us, we've been in the industry for a long time. We say, like, even if you don't design a persona, there is still one there. So you are talking to Google, the um, the company, which is like information and like just trying to get you know trying trying uh, you know search based kind of interactions. But there is a persona there. Yeah, I think we can separate the question of personality from the question of gender. So uh, there was a company called Oslo building a personal assistant, which I think was text-based and not voice, which has been acquired by Facebook. So that might be part of where Facebook is going. I don't have inside information beyond that. Um, but what I know is that that was not a person. So it had a personality. It was a furry creature. <laughs> and I didn't know they got, they got bought by Facebook. I do know Oslo. Yep, he was a little cute little character. Yeah, I think that's that's an interesting way to go. It can still be a personality without, you know, setting up a situation where you're constantly telling this, you know, female person in your household ordering it around or female person-like entity in your household ordering it around in front of your kids. Uh, there was a good article in the New York Times quite a while ago about um, people who have become almost emotionally attached to their Alexa and they have sort of personified it. And I think it is really important that um, your voice assistant has a personality, but obviously it's where do you draw the line and I think there's a lot of debate about what the best practice is for that and um, something we're doing at the moment which is we're finding quite interesting is we're building our skill for Google so we're building Google Action and for Google you can actually change the voice that that speaks and there's two female options and two male options. We're still discussing this because we want our, our app to have its own personality as as a sort of sub-assistant under Google, but it's, we want to make sure that we get it right and that 
the the personality we portray kind of matches the the voice options that are available to us so we'll see how that goes <laughs> this is an interesting conversation uh, this is a fascinating conversation and uh from my standpoint um you know i with alexa i interact with alexa every day um i don't think about that it's a, a female I, I don't know I'm, I'm sure i'm probably in the minority i'm sure that probably makes a big impact but what i will say is when i was at the intelligent assistance conference just a few days ago i had a chance to meet brian romley uh, in person uh, he's been a frequent guest on our show uh just a brilliant individual and he was talking he does a lot of work creating his own voice first prototypes and doing uh, independent research and one thing I know that he's been working on is uh, what it looks like to integrate Myers-Briggs into uh, the development of an intelligent assistant or a voice assistant. Uh, to me, I think that's absolutely paramount because the gender can be one thing. You know, I'll, I'll talk all day to a genderless voice assistant or a male or a female, but if that thing is chirping at me in a way that like it becomes grating, um, that's going to be a problem. Moving on to story number six, there was a recent NPR interview. It's a brief one, wasn't very long, um, and it sort of retreads some old ground in terms of Amazon and Alexa development. But one thing that really caught my attention, and I thought it was pretty negative, is the assertion that I think is correct that creating an Alexa skill, for the most part, is doing work for Amazon for free. So right now, just to recap, you develop an Alexa skill. Amazon's been great. They've developed the market. They've been out in front marketing. They've uh, really provided a lot of leadership in the marketplace. But what they haven't done is allow people to use the developer tools that they've provided to create voice applications that you can sell. Instead, they tell you, the developer, that if you do well enough, and we're not even going to tell you what that means, if, it, if you have a certain amount of engagement, we will send you a check. If you do not have a certain amount of engagement, we will not send you a check. And I think it's totally unsatisfactory. I've talked about this several times on the podcast before. I think it's one of the, the few negative things that Amazon has not addressed yet. And I just want to get all three of y'all and Emily, I'm going to start with you on this. First of all, do you agree with me? Do you think this is a bad thing? Second of all, what other takeaways, if any, did you have from this piece? Um, so, yes, I absolutely agree with you. And I'm very much worried about um, tech companies exploiting, especially students who are um, studying computer science and related fields and saying, yeah, come to our hackathon and come and basically getting them to work for them for free. Um, and I think it's an important role that we play as faculty in educating students in the value that their skills hold. And to you know, really say to them, you know, think carefully about this. Or what are you getting for your effort? Um, and is there another way for you to get that? Um, similarly, I will sometimes be approached by employers who want to see if any of our students are available for unpaid internships. And my answer is always, well, you're welcome to advertise that. But since they tend to get paid internships, probably no one's going to take you up on it. Hmm. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's, that's a great example. I, I, there's so much um, discussion today about just manipulation of people and, um, and manipulation of labor and stuff like that. It just makes it an even harder pill to swallow. And so I think those examples were great, Emily. Jess and Karen, your thoughts on this, either one of y'all. Yeah, so I think we spoke about this um, last time I was on the show because they just announced that they'd start, mon uh, start rewarding uh, more categories apart from from games, I think. 
And I don't think anything's changed since since then. And so now they're rewarding people who build apps and productivity, and that includes uh, LifeBot. But completely, as you say, we have no idea how they decide what makes this good, popular app. Um, no idea how they decide how much you would receive, and it, the money can change every month. And I think, especially um, as a startup, it's um, quite frustrating to have to sort of wait on Amazon to understand how we can start to really monetize. And there seems to be no no real indication of what, what they're doing and what their plans are on that front. And I think especially, um, I know a lot of young developers as well who are encouraged by the idea of potentially getting some money to just churn out skill after skill. And in that sense, the article, even though it's very negative, it is right. Um, a lot of the skills that are now on the store are of questionable um, quality in terms of whether it's something that people actually actually want to use more than once and, and as more than just a gimmick. And I think as soon as there's a proper way to, to monetize, then it will encourage people to also develop skills that have more meaning, that have a better experience for users. And that's definitely something we're trying to, um, aside from the, the monetization issue, it's definitely something we're trying to, to really work on is to actually build a skill that people value and that, that people want to use. So we're talking to our users every day. We're really trying to understand what makes a quality, um, a quality voice app. And I think, that is the other side of what this article is saying, that the unfortunate side of this is that it looks like quantity is being favoured by Amazon over quality right now. I love that idea, Jess. I hadn't really thought about it that way of, um, yeah, first, you know, build, if, if we had a good way, if they had a good way to monetize, then we would be building better we would be building better apps. So um, maybe it's a bit of a chicken and egg thing, but clearly now, I mean, there's just, there's too many and they're, they're pretty bad, like pretty bad, or they don't work. I mean, I, I thought I found, you know, I had a use case and I really, we really tried to use it. It was um, a translator. Um, uh, we, it was um, the French, uh, a French translator. So it would give it an English word and it would tell us what, um, what the French word was. And three, probably like one out of every four times we used it, it couldn't, I was like open the, I can't remember what it was called, the French translator. Like it, it was down like three, one out of every four times we use it. So it was like, forget it. I'm not going to, you know, to be disappointed 25% of the time. Cause I can't access it. Like it's not worth it. If you don't care about, you're trying to provide me a, a skill, you know, you're trying to provide an experience, but you don't care about keeping it alive, then it's not worth it. So I love that idea. Let's make sure that they monetize properly and we'll, we'll get better quality out of it. And I think on adding on to that, Amazon also have a responsibility to educate developers on what to do after they've published their app. I think they've got this massive push right now to just get people to get skills out there, no matter whether they're, they're, they even work properly, as you said. And we've encountered so many skills that you can't even get onto that don't work as they say they would. Um, and I think one thing that many skills aren't doing is actually upkeeping their app or updating it or fixing bugs that people are noticing. So I think it's one thing to help. Obviously, Amazon want a, a store, a skill store with a lot of skills that so it looks attractive for people to, to use. But I think they really need to start also um, providing more education for developers on what to do after it's been published. I completely agree across the board. And I think, you know, to the extent that the the Apple App Store is a appropriate comparison for this, which I think 
it's a pretty good comparison for this, uh, at least at first, for what's going on and what Amazon ought to be trying to do. When a app developer spends a lot of time, I know this, my brother is an app developer, he's based in Atlanta. Um, he, when you spend a lot of time developing an application, you pour your heart into it, you pour your soul into it, and the intention is that you're going to sell that. You have the ability to sell that. You're going to sell that. And you're going to put food on your table with it. What happens? Well, I can tell you what happens. When people respond to you positively or negatively, you are extraordinarily responsive. When somebody presents you with a problem, you fix it immediately. Um, when there's any sort of, when an opportunity for customer service arises, you provide it. It lifts the whole ecosystem up just with the sheer fact that you could sell your product. And in, an, in a situation where you can't, this weird thing that Amazon's got going, which only has one other comparable, and it's Amazon's other ecosystem, which is in the publishing realm and what they do with Kindle. This is an exact mirror of what they do over there. Um, it just muddies the water. It just, uh, it leads to situations like voicespot.ai uh, reported on last week, which is that 62% uh, of Alexa skills today do not have any user reviews. None. So I think an appropriate takeaway from that is, you know, people are just downloading stuff as a gimmick or not at all, you know, and, um, and then if it works, you know, chances are it doesn't work or there's always going to be feedback to provide, but there's no impetus on the user to provide that. Who cares? It's just all throwaway stuff. So hopefully Amazon sees the light on this um, and, and allows people to monetize. And that I'm hearing consensus from the panel on this. Any, any closing thoughts on this uh, new story? I absolutely agree. I think it ties back to that growth from 3% to 6% of people using it in the second week. I think that if we did have this scenario that Jess and Karen are talking about where the app developers were more directly connected to their customers and actually seeing gains for doing better apps, those numbers would go way up as well. Sure. And we didn't even discuss, you know, all, all this story is about or all we've talked about is the ability to monetize the initial sale of an app. We aren't even touching on in-app purchasing or other monetization schemes that can build off of that. So anyway, I, I think the point is made. Hopefully, Amazon is, is listening, if not to this uh, podcast, then uh, uh, to their other customers who I'm sure will be providing the same feedback, and, and maybe we get this at some point. This was fantastic. Emily, Karen, Karen. Jess, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having us on. This was a lot of fun. Thank all three of you for sharing your time, sharing your experience, your expertise, and your insight with not just me, but the audience. It is greatly appreciated. For This Week in Voice, Thursday, September 21st, 2017, thank you for listening, and until next time.